This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Tom Hanks is the author now of two books. And you may have heard of Uncommon Types, some stories, which came out in 2017 and is a terrific story collection. And now there's a new novel called The Making of Another Motion Picture Masterpiece. And this is a crackerjack of a book. This is so much fun. It starts in 1947. It brings us into 1971. And then the bulk of the book is 2020. Yeah. So I got to ask, when did you start working? Uh, I've been working on this about the last uh, five years or so. You have to throw down. Uh, at some point, when is this story happening? And so uh, ended up putting it essentially at the tail end of all of the COVID protocols. There's a mention in the book. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. a book about how we may, you make a movie under COVID protocols, but we said, oh, and hey, by the way, this movie was made during COVID protocols. So you got to right. take all that stuff into account. And also the quasi reemergence of the motion picture industry as in that status where you say, hey, a movie is playing in this very specific room at 745 this evening. So I need to leave my house at 715. I have to find a place to park. I have to buy a ticket. I have to be sitting in a seat with a bunch of strangers and we have to watch this movie. So that sort of makes it come back at the, at the same time. So this is a charming, big hearted story. It's 70 years of America. It's filmmaking. It's creativity. But it opens with a kid called Robbie Anderson in 1947 in a tiny California town called Lone Butte. And I'm wondering, is Robbie how you walked into this story? Did you start with him or did you just start with what you just explained, this whole idea of film? I discovered a long time ago that there is no telling when a character in a film is first fully realized. And an awful lot of times, look, I've made movies that took 12 years to develop literally from an original idea until until the movie comes out or six years to develop and oftentimes you have to wait for another ally to come into the process you have an idea and you have a thing and what you all end up agreeing on is the theme that is going to be examined in the movie and that often comes by way of a very very specific character uh-huh who is this character and where does it land and a fictional movie that they are making the uh, potential modern motion picture masterpiece is a a love story called <laughs> Nightshade: The Lathe of Firefall. And Nightshade is a character, is a woman, and Firefall is the boy. Boy meets girl. And who is that character, Firefall? And it begins because young Robbie Anderson in 1947, out of nowhere, out of the ether, out of the uh, the sands of history, shows up uh, his uncle who had disappeared in the war, as in the war, as in World War II. And I am of that generation, I've, although I, I, I was born in 56, so 47 is, is way early for me, in which adults and the war were palpable burdens. They came into every room that were particularly like 1959, 1960, 61. Every grown-up who came, who was in your life, carried with them this untold story my dad, he was a machinist in the Navy. He hated being in the Navy and he didn't have much to say about the war. Although, if we will sit down and pin him down and say, Dad, I'm not just talking about your experiences in the war. I'm talking about the five years of stasis that you were in. So you take that. And in this case, Robbie Anderson meets his uncle, who all he knows about him was he was a Marine 
in the Pacific. And lo and behold, it seems as though he might have been a flamethrower. And if you want to talk about a particular type of death, I think bring from a flamethrower would be about as gruesome as you're going to get. Now, the burden of that, the other side of that is, what about the flamethrower himself? What about a 19-year-old kid whose job it is to carry, you know, walk around with a tank of pressurized napalm on it and burn people to death with it? And it, it's that character of Firefall that ends up being the trigger that makes the entire motion picture possible in the first place by the director and the writer saying, well, who's the guy? And he stumbles upon this old, 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 old comic book that happened to have been drawn by an artist by the name of Robbie Anderson, is making a comment on his mysterious uncle. And lo and behold, you have something that could speak to an audience in 2020. Which I love because I'm very fond of your Anderson family. And I'm very fond of Uncle Bobby, who does swing back in to town. And I'm the way you handle him and that character is really sort of gentle and kind and very intriguing. So obviously I wanted to know more about him and he gets a nice arc. So thank you for that. But when you were sitting down to write this, are you working from 2020 back? Or did you say, hey, wait a minute, here's this moment, here's this war hanging over everyone, because I know exactly what you're talking about. Lots of my elders just would not talk about that period ever. The germ of this with my editor, Peter Gathers, he says, do you want to write a novel? And I said, of course I do. <laughs> okay. Then that led into a discussion of well, what in the living daylights would that be? Mm -hmm. And he says, look, you have a very interesting job and nothing is more interesting than hearing somebody talk about what they do and how they ended up doing it. And you have a job that's, you know, pretty glamorous in some ways, but is also incredibly workaday. And I said, okay, I got that. Making of a movie is always, it's an impossible thing to explain. You can only right. experience it. But that ends up breaking up what I know about the making of any motion picture is you have source material, you have pre-production, you have production, and you have post-production. And that source material takes a long time to accrue. So yeah, I actually started, the first thing I wrote was, um, it was a section of the book that is called Base Camp. Oh, which good. Is, which is <laughs> like, the, that's the place on the movie where everybody gathers every single day before they go off and start making the movie. And if you haven't been to a base camp, uh, it's on one hand, the most glamorous place in the world, even if it does begin to come to life at 545 in the morning. And then from that, I ended up wanting to have a, a three, is this the word I'm looking for? A fully rounded three-dimensional character on whom the entire motion picture and therefore the book would rest. It was uh, Bob Falls, Uncle Bobby. And I remember reading a long, long time ago that the origins of a lot of the motorcycle gangs that became the stuff of outlaw motor, you know, all, they have all sorts of names like the Chingalings and the, the Pharaohs and the, the Hells Angels. A lot of those gangs came about because Marines were coming back from fighting in the Pacific and they had a lot of money and there was no way they were going to go back to their standard John Law lives. They had seen too much. They had done too much. They had lived their lives on one hand, according to the rules of warfare, but on the other hand, according to the laws of uh, chaos in which there were no rules and it was only to survive. So they all, a lot of them became bikers and therefore uncle Bobby, uh, spent his combat pay on a motorcycle and he just became one of these guys when there was no way he was going to become a, you know, a regular citizen again. 
And it ended up taking him about 20 years before he could do it. And uh, that character, I thought, that was an intersection of an, an awful lot of a classical storytelling. You can take anything from Richard III to Hamlet to Betty Davis and Jezebel and put that on Uncle Bob at just that burden that he carries, that unspeakable burden, that burden that he cannot unleash. Uh, it's just this dog that's just snarling at his heels. And it's what he did during the war and the America that he lived in afterwards. It also reminded me of that story you have in Uncommon Type, Christmas Eve, 1953, which is a really powerful story. And I'm wondering if that became part of this book in a way, that sort of sentiment. It did. And it it becomes a a part of a number of the works that I've done, because at at Playtone, we've done a lot of television, nonfiction television about trying to bust up the tropes of those kids who got out of high school and went off and fought the Nazis in the Japanese Empire. And saved the world in many ways, at least for a while they did, you know. And I always ask myself a bit of that same question is, okay, it's one thing to go back and examine a very specific 24 hours in somebody under combat or under fire in a place like uh, the Battle of the Bulge or the freezing Ardennes Forest or, you know, a destroyer off of Shima. But it's something else. And then to take that very same person and put them in 1958, driving across the country with uh, their family. What did they do? What did they do 10 years after 1945? You know what they were doing? A lot of them were just trying to make a living and trying to set up their kids' uh, electric train under the, under the Christmas tree. And that's only 10 years after the fact. Now, I'm 66, and I can go back to each one of my sixes, 56, 46, 36, 26. And I wonder who in the world was that guy then and where, who was he 10 years later? And if you take anybody who I think has gone through the conflagration, that was something like a worldwide half a decade of uh, wondering who was going to win this great struggle. You end up coming away with, I think, a great paradox of this question is how do we get on with our lives? Right. How do we get on whatever this next chapter is? And for some of us, the big struggle we had was, you know, getting out of high school without being a virgin. And others of us have to deal with, you know, how do we come back from a world gone mad and be expected just to get on with a a sane and orderly life of ourselves? That to me is constantly fascinating. And I I guess the mix in the novel Mm -hmm. is you can take, uh, well, let's just take a number of the the characters, you know, what an actor by the name of Ike Clipper is going through (laughs) and what the director is going through or or what a makeup man who has been in the business for, you know, 57 right. years, what are they going through? And is that the equal to what Bob Falls went through when he was a Marine in the, in the court? On one hand, absolutely not. But on the other hand, all struggles are relative and all trauma is something that we carry along with our, you know, personas and our, our countenance into every endeavor we take on. And that includes the goofy world of making movies for a living. But community is the heart of this book. I mean, when you said base camp, I, I got excited because it's an excuse for me to bring up two women I love in this book, Al McTeer and Inez, two of the production women. And they're great. I love these characters so much. And the way they come to movie making is not at all what some people would think. There is no film school background. It's serendipity in the best possible way. And these women who are just like, yeah, I'm just going to solve problems. Like, just let me do uh-huh. my thing. And make it happen. But this community is so real. And each piece of it, whether it's Bobby Falls or Robbie Anderson or Bill Johnson and Bill's partner, Patrice, is particularly great as well. She's got a raised eyebrow through the whole thing. And I think she's a groovy character as well. But this community that you've built and you bring them back to Lone Butte, you set a giant film production in a very tiny place. 
Well, I've done that. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been that guy. You know, you enter into the circus, you're in a small town. I've been in Evansville, Indiana, and I've been in uh, Dresden, Germany, and I've been on, oh my God, parts of uh, South Carolina. And what happens is the, the initial arrival of the town is like, hey, the circus is here. Everybody wants to grab a, a sneak uh, inside the big top while they're setting up, and everybody will catch the show. But then you're there for three months. And then you know what you become after that? Just a member of that community, as well as part of the roving band of family that is a motion picture unit. And that is a very special group of people. I think that the thing that really makes everybody want to keep working in movies is that band of folks, that people you, you see absolutely every day. And everybody has to do their job. You know, you mentioned Al McTeer and Ine. The reason that they are so perfectly matched for show business is what we say around the office, which is, well, how do you, uh, uh, what's the secret of working, uh, working in any kind of uh, entertainment? I said, well, you know, it's actually the same secret as working on the building of a bridge or uh, the, the assembly of anything or even that you have to solve problems. And if you cause more problems than you solve, you're out. You will not survive. That is a priceless commodity. Look, in any endeavor, I you know I have to say because you know any chain is only as strong as its weakest link. But everybody works and solves their problems when they come across their desk. You have one Cracker Jack unit. All right, let's talk about voice for a second because the voice throughout making of a motion picture masterpiece is terrific. But the dialogue, you just crank through this. It's really terrific to hear. And it's fun to read. And I know both of your books, you leave a note for Nora Ephron, who yes. I happen to love. And I went back to Heartburn. Mm. Not that you really need an excuse to reread Heartburn, but it was a nice moment to be like, I should go back and look at this again. And can I ask what you learned from her? Because you guys worked together on a lot of fronts for a long time, but I sort of feel like a little bit of that swing on the page might be a little bit of a New Yorker thing. Well, I was sending some things to uh, look. I've always, I've always wanted to be a writer without, without the wherewithal, without, without literally, without sort of like the tools or the instruction. Because as an actor, I can always look. I can just be always just be loud and kind of funny. And uh, as long as you're the loudest person in the class and one of the funnier ones, you get away with a lot of stuff. You know, <laughs> you could, you could just wing it. But mm -hmm. Nora, when we, we began working together, Nora said, you are a writer, you're a writer, you wrote that, you wrote that. And I said, no, I didn't. I just said it during rehearsal. And out of that, you ended up putting it in the movie. And she said, that's what writing is. Mm -hmm. And when I began to write some stuff and I would send it to her and I say, is this a thing? And she says, yes, yes. <laughs> what you now have to do is revise, revise, revise. And you must always remember voice, voice voice what is your voice and that to me is not only just your point of view and your style but it's also i think you have to end up keep answering the question when in whatever piece you're writing which is why am i examining this theme what is it about this idea that is worthy of me writing it and and you reading it and nora because she was a journalist you know one of the great stories about nora is there's a famous footage of the Beatles arriving uh, in uh, 1964 in the Pan Am building. You know, it's a great, this great press conference that goes on. And I was talking to Nora one day and she said, uh, and, and she had been a journalist all those years. And one of her first jobs was in the uh, old uh, uh, New York Herald Tribune, one of the great newspapers in the history of newspapers. 
And while we're talking, I said, you know, what, what, do you, what did you do there? I said, oh, you know, I was gorgeous and I had my great style and I was always the, the writing. And then I would always end up complaining because I'd have to go out to Idlewild Airport again and cover the arrival of the Beatles. And I said, stop. <laughs> wait, wait, Nora, you were there. It said, oh, yeah, yeah. It said you were in the Pan Am thing when they did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there. And I swear, I said, Nora, I believe I hear you on that preference. And this is because I, I, I wrote, directed a movie about a band, you know, a long mm -hmm. time ago. <laughs> and uh, that, that footage, that thing you do in that footage was a big part of it. And I said, are you the lady who then screams, sing something to the Beatles? And I think uh, John Lennon says, no, you have to give us money first. And it got, got a big laugh. And I said, that was you, wasn't it? She says, no, no. She said, I don't think that was me. I think that was, she said, somebody else. So Nora's journalistic perspective, it has a bit of a caustic eye. Mm -hmm. You know, a journalism, a lot of journalists walk into every interview or cover every story with this, you know, with this kind of like quotation, really, you know, are these guys really a big deal? Is this really news? Is this really, are you really who you're going to, well, I put the movie in the words of uh, Joe Shea, uh, a, who is dare we call it a teacher of films. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how anybody who has never made a movie can teach film studies, but he loves movies and la la la. And uh, he had come across uh, Bill Johnson, the director. So right. I wanted it to come from a perspective of someone who number one uh, uh, loves movies. Number two uh, knows he has no idea how they are actually made, but three is given the keys to the inner sanctum in this mm -hmm. And uh, watches it all from from beginning to again, and that requires, dare I say it, a bit of Nora Ephron's jaundiced eye, uh, not caustic, not cynical, but just kind of like, how does this happen? How does how does this uh, how do these twists of fates all stack up? And at the end, the result is a movie that people might want to go see. Do you read out loud while you work? I mean, it seems to me that there is again. I know I mentioned it a little earlier, but this is swing to the dialogue there's that back and forth that is so much fun to read i can't say i do but i think i do a lot of my stuff sound just sounds like oratory at some point right. you know okay. I, I think it comes from having done too many talk shows and spend too many hours with uh, segment producers trying to come up with witty banter that will come off as though it's actually occurring for the first time but actually has been quite rehearsed and is all on note cards so people think you're actually uh doing it at the time people who make movies seem to have all been born with two cups of coffee in them. you know the, the the momentum of making a movie it you know requires that brand of give and take you know mm -hmm. i know like for example my friend uh, ron howard who i've made a ton of movies with yep. he knew he wanted to direct movies when he was you know running around mayberry as opie with aunt b he knew then that he wanted to direct movies and we were comparing notes before i started directing and he said well you know there's nothing wrong with just you know shooting wide and then moving in closer and then going in tighter and getting some overs so that you exhaust the material and i said well i don't i don't know how i you know you direct a movie seems like all you do is answer questions all day long and that sounds like hell to me and he says hell are you kidding that's the best part of the job you know so uh, my stuff i think the dialogue is always about people who are providing answers you know the, mm -hmm. the talk that goes down in the course of when the clock is running, you've got to get it done. And so 
you start at A, but you really have to shoot at some other deeper letter of the alphabet. You can't just then shoot B and C. You got to be shooting Q and R. You got to be farther on down there. And that means the dialogue, the idea, the uh, the, the the pace of it all. It's got to have alacrity to it. You, you got to get going. And and by and large, people who make movies talk a lot and love to hear themselves talk and love to be topped. That's another thing. You put six people, you know, around at a lunch table, you know, and if they're mm-hmm. all working at the top of their game, it's like, oh, my God, look out, because everybody is trying to top the other person with, uh, you know, the best anecdote or the best idea of the scene that you're talking about. And when it happens, all you can do is throw your hands up and say, OK, that's it. That's what we're doing. Okay. What do you get from writing fiction that you don't necessarily get from other work that you do? I will tell you that as an actor, and I think, I I don't know if I say this in the book or not, but everybody who works on a movie has to come. And I mean, everybody, I mean, the prop guy, I mean, the gaffers, I mean, I mean, the, the, the script supervisor, the caterers, they have to come in with an idea, a thing in their pocket. That is not on the call sheet, not as required of them. They have to come in with some bold, fresh doodad or an idea that they don't tell anybody about. They just do. And writing prose gives Mm -hmm. me that. I don't have to talk about it. I don't have to tell anybody about it. I just have to pursue it in whatever time and uh, wherewithal allows. And that is a type of massive liberation for me because i think i think we are all either telling a story mm-hmm. or we are hearing a story or we are participants in somebody else's story and uh i look i started waking up like this when i was six years old thinking what's the entertaining aspect of what's going on today right? mm-hmm. what is somebody saying that i've never ever seen before what am i going to dream about and daydream about as i'm walking to school today it just never, ever stopped. And that outlet that writing comes is very, very different. And yet at the same time requires the same instinctive lunge that it does when I show up to work with a complicated scene in order to shoot. I've got to have that thing in my pocket. Otherwise, I'll be starting at a standstill. And that oftentimes is the death of creativity. There's a very sweet story that sort of kicks off your fiction writing and patch it helped you get one of my favorite stories of yours, uh, A Month on Green Street, was published in a tiny, tiny magazine called One Story, which is yes. run by a fabulous gang of folks. What a, what a, honestly, it's like, I want to ask if they just run it off on a mimeograph machine in the basement of their mom's house or something like that. It's That's a that's an organization, yeah. But I was so delighted to know that piece of the story. And also, if you haven't read Uncommon Type, what are you waiting for? Just go grab it because there's so many great stories in this book. But I love the idea that that's sort of where the stories first appeared. And yes, then work appeared in The New Yorker and whatnot. But does this mean we get more stories at some point? Or are you going to stick with long form? Or are you just going to do what you can when you can? I I can only do what I can when I can. Uh, I, I want to say I was able to take some cut section of uh, from the book uh, from mm-hmm. the story of uh, uncle bob and ran as a short story i think in harper's in january february mm-hmm. yep it's funny uh i asked my my, my editor peter gather mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i said how long should a short story be and he said you know until it comes to an end i said you <laughs> have a we have a page count there and he said seven pages 82 figure it out uh and i said well okay that's that's pretty that's pretty free form 
So I, I think it all is about, um, again, I don't want to come back to this, but it, it does go into everything. How much time am I going to need in order to examine the theme to the point where it's as wrung out as I need it to be? I, I have, oh God, I have no plans. I, 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 there's nothing I do every day by ritual. So I just hope that I have the uh, wherewithal in order to continue writing because there's no life like it. I mean, isn't it kind of like just something you sort of have to do? You know, I'm no good with tools. I'm not the type Mm -hmm. of guy that can, you know, walk around the house and say, oh, you know what? I'm going to resand that and I'm going to adjust that and I'm going to rebuild that and I'm going to stain that. If I could do that, maybe I wouldn't be the guy who walks into the wakes up every morning and on the way to get a cup of coffee, sees my notebook sitting in there and says, I got to write down that thing. And then I write down that thing and it goes on for as long as it does. So you know it when you see it. Well, yeah, but sometimes you see it and it's just not there. You Mm, know, that's that's undeniable. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, that ain't it. That ain't it. And so it it ends up being that, uh, you know, it's it's. I think writing is an awful lot like that guy in the neighborhood who is practicing his trumpet in his garage. <laughs> it's just always there. And you wonder, was that guy going to shut? Oh, no, actually, he's getting a little bit better. You know, maybe I'll listen to that. It's just this constant wail. It just never, ever, ever, mm-hmm. ever goes away. And then sometimes you notice it and sometimes you don't. Well, I'm not the only bookseller who's hoping we get more books from you as you can. So we're here. But in the meantime, Uncommon Type certainly is out. And now as well, we've got the making of another motion picture masterpiece, which is really, I know we talked about a little bit of heavy stuff, but it's very fun and it's very big hearted and really just everyone needs to read it now. Tom Hanks, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Well, thank you so much. How great to talk with you this morning. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece by Mr. Tom Hanks. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm great. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. Fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and kick things off if that's all right. I've been pretty stoked for Mr. Hanks's new book, and it brought to mind one of my favorite books that I've read probably of all time-ish, and that is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Mr. Michael Chabon. Ah, what a treat. I remember reading this when it first came out in hardcover, and it's stuck with me ever since, and I feel like I might be ready for a reread pretty soon. It's an epic novel. It won the Pulitzer in 2001, and I think really just sits as an homage to mid-century America and the golden age of comic books and pop culture. So we follow our two title characters in the 1930s in New York. Joseph Cavalier has essentially just smuggled himself out of occupied Prague through various means of sleight of hand-ish and just general savvy. And he winds up at his cousin Sammy Clayman's home in Brooklyn. And this Friendship blooms pretty rapidly and then expands into the world of art and pop culture. Joe's artistic abilities, combined with Sammy's knack for storytelling, launch the two of them into creating a superhero comic that will essentially change them forever. The way that their storytelling and comic form reflects the times in which they live, uh, their personal struggles, the struggles that the world is having in 1939 is beautiful combination. And I just think this is an unforgettable and unmissable book. 
it is a tale of how art can inform lives and how a life can inform art. And it's just a book about life and God and love and war and survival and loss and hope and passion. It's a book that galvanizes. I think that the characters are presented perfectly and are perfectly present. They really feel in the moment, they feel of the time, and both of them are in their own way, just very aspirational. And I think also Shavon's sentences are superb, which always helps a story move along. And really just the feeling that I had leaving the book and even now thinking back on it is just very energetic and refreshing and just makes you want to create. So please, please check out The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shabon. Jamie, what do you have for us? Okay, um, first of all, mega Michael Shabon fan. <laughs> and as we were talking about this, like as we were preparing, I started thinking about I need to work my way back through. Uh, and then I got very nostalgic nostalgic for my Michael Shabon times uh, earlier in my life. And this weekend, I actually watched Wonder Boys, uh, which I love that movie based yes. on one of his books. So for a movie segue here, I'll, I'll give a big thumbs up still. It holds <laughs> up. Wonder Boys holds up. There's a few things that are a little dated, but uh, for the most part, it holds up. So moving into the movie business here, whenever I read anything about the movie industry, my mind is always going to jump to William Goldman. He's a masterful screenwriter. He wrote and adapted so many famous screenplays, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, Misery, The Stepford Wives. And of course, he adapted his own novels, Marathon Man and The Princess Bride. Aside from that, I could talk about his novels for probably an hour if I was given the chance. Uh, he's just a one-of-a-kind writer. But he had all this success in the 70s. And after this sort of initial flush of success, he entered a little bit of a slump in the 80s. And he just wasn't writing as many movies as he was. And he so he decided to sit down and write a kind of memoir called Adventures in the Screen Trade. If you're a film buff, this book is definitely going to be for you. you. You may have already read it, but definitely give it to some friends, some fellow film friends. It's full of these really fascinating and kind of gossipy and really brutally honest looks at how films get made, what makes a screenplay work and not work, because honestly, a lot of them don't work. He does not pull any punches in this book. <laughs> It is a kind of Hollywood memoir meets um, probably practical wisdom meets how to write a screenplay manual. So it's like getting this graduate level film course in these rapid fire sentences. And he, there's one of his sentences in this book that is his most iconic of all time. And many, many people talk about him and talk about this quote. And that is that nobody knows anything in Hollywood. He kicks off a big section about studio executives with those words. And he's like, let me repeat myself. Nobody knows anything. And really what he means like about that is that there's just no magic formula. None of these guys know what's going to work with an audience when they start down the path of making a movie. There's no magic formula of this movie star plus this director plus this budget equals hit. They just don't know. And so he gives a lot of examples of movies that studio executives passed on and that went on to be huge hits like Jaws and E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is just incredible to me. But all of those were initially passed on by some studio executives because they didn't think they were going to work at the box office. He does chapters on movie stars. He says they are both essentially worthless. <laughs> And absolutely essential at the same time. 
He has one solitary page on directors. I'm not even going to spoil that one. He asks about what producers of every stripe do, you know, associate, executive, et cetera. And he says, I have the foggiest. <laughs> he has an entire section on meetings. He proposes new Oscar categories like best meeting based on another meeting. <laughs> and in every chapter, he kind of asks all the questions we have ever had about the movie making process. So in part two of this book, he then kind of takes you through 10 of his films, 10 of his screenplays that he's worked on. And he brings you on this behind the scenes tour of how he got the job, how he approached the screenplay, the honest kind of ups and downs of the process just from start to finish. And he doesn't pull any punches. He talks about failures, like both his failures and other people's. He shatters egos. He outs agents who have lied to him. He explains and he actually includes like the math to back it up, why most stars will never still be as popular as they were today, five years from today. So he charts kind of the hits through the years. And he writes all of this in these really short propulsive sentences that and these like micro paragraphs that are sort of his trademarks and keep you turn, turning pages. And then in part three, you get this real treat. You get a breakdown of the writing process of his beloved screenplay for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And so the bulk of the book is actually a working screenplay of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And so you get to read that. And before and after, you kind of get to read how that came to the set that day, how he arrived at that version of the screenplay. And then in the final part of the book, he does this interesting exercise. And this is fascinating for anyone who writes, I think, he takes a short story that he wrote so long ago that when his daughter showed it to him, he had no memory of writing it. It's called Da Vinci. And he adapts it in the book, on the page, into a screenplay right there in front of your eyes. So he's brainstorming. He's tossing out, you know, terrible ideas. He's explaining why they won't work. He gives, you know, the reader some of his actual tools, like lists of questions to ask themselves and how to make edits and what to throw away. And he presents this short screenplay, followed by interviews with all the professionals that would be needed, like directors and costumers and all the suggestions they have um, that could improve Da Vinci, the screenplay, which he says fills him with both elation and despair. <laughs> this is a long book. It is a long book, but it reads really quick. And I think if Tom Hanks had sort of whetted your appetite for more Hollywood stories, then I, I think it would be tough to top William Goldman. So again, that's Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman. Fantastic. I am adding it to the top of my list. Uh, that sounds fascinating. And, and you're right, like a great companion to Tom Hanks's newest. So wonderful as always. But that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.